Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. So yeah, we have been in this series called Greater Than. It's the series, um, it's a series that's been through the book of Hebrews. And I hope you've been enjoying it so far. I hope you've been doing the reading. How many have been doing the reading? It's so little that it's, anybody can do it. And you can even catch up this week because we got three more sermons after this week on the book of Hebrews. Have you liked the book so far? Have you learned something about it and got into it a little more than you maybe ever have before? It's very easy to get into a book like Hebrews, which is not necessarily an easy book to read and understand just, just by plowing through it um, quickly. Uh, but when you take time and study, oh my goodness, it's so doctrinally rich. And, uh, you know, I, I, the theme that we've seen thus far is, is that Jesus is greater than anything and everything connected to the old covenant. He represents the new covenant. It's founded upon him. He did not do away with the old. He fulfilled the old and even made it obsolete by giving us the new. Religion was exchanged for relationship. And I am so glad that we don't have to serve God through religion, but we can serve him through a relationship that's personal and real. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, The first 10 chapters of Hebrews, we have seen uh, the writer convincing uh, these second generation Christians that were being persecuted and were beginning to slip in their faith a little bit. Uh, that Jesus is greater than the prophets of the old covenant. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses and Joshua. He's greater than all the old covenant priests as he has become our one and only high priest. And, and every once in a while, we have seen the author also shift from his essay on convincing his readers of these things to giving stern warnings about neglecting our salvation, warnings about unbelief, and even about falling away from the faith committing the great sin of apostasy. You know, it's very interesting that this uh, series has played out like it is because it's gone right along with what's happening in our world. And I I just, I, I love the fact that God leads us in these things even to the point of what book to pick. And we picked this like a year, a year ago to do this book, not necessarily at this time, but it just came up at this time that it would work out. You know, and all the, all the, the turmoil and the fear and the, the, the unrest, the social unrest and the political unrest that we're seeing and, and the, the, the people that are saying things that are just uh, uh, scary, really scary. Um, I, I think there's nothing better to, than to look at a book that was written to people who were being persecuted, whose faith was kind of slipping a little bit or at least relaxing a little bit. And the writer of Hebrews just lays it out and says, hey, none of that stuff matters because we serve a God. We serve Jesus Christ who is greater than all of it. I mean, folks, there is no reason to fear today. There's every reason to be excited and to be, uh, 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 maybe just to have a little bit of pep in your step because of what's going on in our world. We are living in some of the last days. And I don't know how long it's going to be before Christ comes back. We don't know that. But these are the last days. It's been the last days since the book of Acts, by the way. <laughs> but we're in the last of the last days, I believe. We're getting closer. And since I said that, we're even closer yet. And now we're closer yet. So you can rest be assured that this moment right now is closer to Jesus coming back than it was a little bit ago. 
And that's exciting to me because when Jesus comes back, you know, and he sits on the throne, there is no more political parties. There is no more political ads. There is no more humans in charge. Just Jesus Christ sitting on the throne and he is our savior, he is our king. Folks, you're not citizens of this world when you accept Jesus. You are in this world, you're not of it, but you are citizens of heaven. So don't get full of despair because of what's going on. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Man, we serve a great, great God. And the last thing this world needs is a bunch of Christians going. This is, God is in control. I'm telling you, he's in control. And I don't care, uh, uh, I don't care how powerful someone thinks they are or how powerful political parties think they are or how powerful or how manipulative or how uh, deceitful people can be. God's bigger than all that. Way, way bigger. So, in our last couple of weeks, um, we have... uh, We've had fun there in, in Hebrews, and we're going to continue this week. I'm going to look in Hebrews. The last couple of weeks, we've looked at Hebrews. Uh, uh, actually, we've had two reading weeks without a sermon in between because we had our missions convention last week. Oh, man, was that a good service or what? God just was awesome in this place, I think. And, uh, yeah, we loved it. It was, it was just a neat, neat service. But the last couple of weeks, you've read Hebrews, and, and part of that reading was Hebrews 9, 1 through 12. And I want to go to that this morning, and I want to read a portion of it. So follow along on your phones, follow along up on the screen. I'm just going to read this because I think it's really important. This is the part of the scripture this last couple of weeks that jumped out on the page, and I think that you need to maybe look a little deeper at, to its meaning, even in reference to what's going on in the world. Hebrews 9, 1 through 12. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Talking about what was inside the Ark of the Covenant there. Verse 5, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail um, in this letter, but I'm going to speak in detail about them a little bit. Not full detail, but a little bit of detail this morning so that you understand what he's talking about here. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, that's the holy place, performing their ritual duties, but into the second area, which is the holy of holies, or the most holy place, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By, the, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the, the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this argument, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. 
Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tense, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's a lot of stuff to take in and just... 12 verses, but I, I really want you to understand what this is all saying, and I'm going to go back here and grab a, grab a uh, bottle of water because I don't like the preaching to be dry. Ah, praise God for water. Love that water. So, first of all, Jesus, this, this is saying, the writer is saying that Jesus is a greater tabernacle he is greater than the earthly tabernacle, okay? He's just greater than. He's greater than the earthly tabernacle. And let me give you some background so you can understand this a little better. Um, it, it, the writer is referring to the tabernacle uh, of the Jewish people. After Moses led the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt, okay, and they were in bondage for 430 years, they were in slavery to Egypt, to, to the Egyptians, and after he, he had uh, uh, led them out of their bondage and they, they went across the Red Sea and the Red Sea parted and he, he led these, these uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jews out of Hebrews, Jews, out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea. You know, we know Pharaoh chased them. We know that, that the water came back in on, on him and all the chariots and horses and drowned Pharaoh and all those, those things. You with me so far? And then, and then he, he got into the wilderness and they began to uh, make, make their way to Mount Sinai. Okay, Mount Sinai. They went there in order for Moses to go up the mountain and receive the law. And when he received the law, he received more than just the Ten Commandments. He received the entire law and he also received all of the details for how they were going to worship, how they were supposed to worship. Very important. It, it took him a long time. You know, it, it was days that he was up there, days and days. And as, as the, the people grew restless down below, of course, we know they sinned. They built a golden calf, and uh, they were punished for that. And the Israelites wandered then after that for 40 years in the desert as they were making their way to, um, uh, to the promised land, which was Canaan. All right, now, now understand, I'm, I'm throwing a bunch of stuff at you here this morning, but this is why the Old Testament is so important. And this should excite you that Hebrews is talking about things in the Old Testament because it's connecting them for us, which is great, because they are connected. You know, God gave Abraham a promise, didn't he? He gave him a promise that he would have a son and his, and his ancestors or his, his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in, in the sky and the sands and the seashore. And Abraham in his old age and his wife in her old age had a son named Isaac. Isaac gave birth then to Jacob. We know also Esau, Jacob and Esau. Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. Go in the Old Testament and read all about it. It's awesome. And then Jacob had 12 sons which became the 12 tribes of Israel. And you'll see this 12 tribes of Israel thing repeated all the way into, even into Revelation. You, you hear about people talk about the 144,000. Well, that's 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes. Interesting stuff. Don't have time to get into all that today. But it's all connected. 
The Bible is not just a bunch of words on a page that, should, that confuse you. If you get in there and study it a little bit, you're gonna find truth and stuff, and you're like, holy cow, this is amazing. How was this written 1,500 years before this, and it makes perfect sense, and it comes together like a perfect puzzle? I'm telling you, as sure, sure as I'm standing here, there are no contradictions in the Word of God. If you think there are contradictions, you don't understand it. You don't understand it. It's important that you dig in and dig deep. So we know that, that uh, now, generations later, we know that one of the, and I'll just keep going here, Jacob had his, his name was changed to Israel by God. Remember, he wrestled with God, and God touched him, and he had to walk with a limp the rest of his life, and blah, 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 and uh, I'm just trying to get through this quickly this morning. But he had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. Joseph made his brothers jealous, and so his brothers, I'm giving you the whole Old Testament here. This is awesome. Joseph gave his, uh, uh, his, uh, his, his, or his brothers gave, sold Joseph into slavery because they were jealous of him. His dad liked him. Gave him a coat of many, many colors. Remember that? All right? So Joseph, sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, and he ends up... Uh, Second in command. Second in command of all of Egypt. Amazing. And that is how the Hebrews came to be in bondage to Egypt because after many, many years, the new Pharaoh didn't even know that Joseph existed. And after Joseph died and they were still residing in Egypt, um, and if you remember, Joseph saved all of his, his family from famine by, by rising to that level. And then generations later, there was, there was uh, no knowledge of Joseph doing that and Joseph having favor, uh, you know, years and years and years and years ago, centuries before actually. And so then you have, you have these Israelite people enslaved in Egypt. Now we're up to Moses and Moses delivers these people out of Egypt through the 10 plagues that you know. Are, are you following me so far? Okay, is this making sense? You know, sometimes in church people ask, if you ask them what came first, Jesus or Moses? And some people don't know. This is a long time before Jesus came, all right? So Moses is in the wilderness now with the Israelites. He's leading them. They've gotten the law. They've gotten their, 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 uh, their instructions on how to worship properly. And uh, they got a lot of instructions about this tabernacle that they were supposed to build and worship within. And I, this is what Hebrews is referring to, this earthly tabernacle that Jesus is so much better than or greater than. And as they traveled and wandered through the wilderness, by the way, it only was an 11-day walk to get from uh, Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, but because they sinned, it took them 40 years. You know, when God tells you to do something, you need to do it. Obedience is key. It, it, it can be 40 years in the desert if you're disobedient. That's just truth. These were a nomadic people, and as they moved, this tabernacle went with them. And every detail and, and meaning, uh, it, it, it had so, it was so rich, this, this tabernacle. And the, the, if you read in Exodus and even in some Leviticus, it's amazing how God laid out every single detail, the colors, the type of fabric, everything about this tabernacle was completely detailed. And if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, um, you might get uh, bogged down in some of those things, but they're all important. I wanna go over some of them today. Uh, Hebrews doesn't talk um, 
necessarily about uh, parts of the tabernacle. It kind of jumps into uh, as you get inside, but I'm going to go over all of it today just real quickly. And um, I, wanted, I want you to see that, that uh, all of this stuff, all of these details within the tabernacle and the articles within the tabernacle, it's all typology and it points to Christ. So first off, the courtyard, all right? The courtyard is, is the first thing that, that you would see. And it's, it, picture a 150-foot by 75-foot rectangle. That's, that's the courtyard. That was the size. Roughly, it was half a football field, um, half the length, and then half the width as well. And uh, the outer wall of the tabernacle court, this big rectangle, was made from pure white linen, and it stood nearly eight feet tall in the middle of a bland, dusty desert. I, I, now, I just want you to think about this for a second. I, I maybe didn't appreciate this as much as I do right now since I went to Botswana. Because those of you that went to Botswana and we got back in the bush and we got away from the city, it was nothing but the sand. It's desert. It was just sand. And there was these little huts all over. And there was a thousand kids in these little villages. I mean, there's tons of kids. A thousand kids. And they're wearing like white shirts in this desert. And it wasn't like they had washing machines in their huts. And it wasn't like they had all the, uh, the, the modern uh, things that we have in America here to clean things, but those kids' shirts were so bright white, you couldn't believe it. You didn't see a spot on them. They just, and they stood out in the desert against that sand, that dirt. It, it, it was unbelievable how white everything looked. And I, that's how I imagine this. This white courtyard, this 150 foot by 70 foot five-foot rectangle stood out. It was pure white linen and just sitting there in the desert. And it's a picture of purity. You know, the, right off the bat, you can see why, why would God pick white? Why would he do that? That had to be hard to keep clean. I mean, the wind actually blows in the desert. Did you know that? Sand flies around. I mean, things get dirty. And here, in the middle of all of it, all this sand and dirt was this pure white linen. And I think of so many things as we, we think about the earthly tabernacle in reference to Christ, the purity of Christ, the purity that, that, that we have in Christ. You know, that's something that uh, we don't think about maybe enough. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, how many have done that? Are you with me here this morning? All right. Uh, you, his righteousness, his purity becomes your purity. Let that soak in. Because if there's been something impure in your life, you can accept Christ and his purity becomes your purity. If you sin and you confess your sins, as John 1, 9 says, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, and that purity is right back there. We can walk in the purity of Christ, church, and not be under a cloud of shame. So the courtyard. And then there was the gate, not mentioned in Hebrews, but it's part of the tabernacle. And it was a, there was this, this white linen outlining, uh, curtains that were outlining the courtyard. And, and then you had this one area that was a gate, and it was a different color. It was royalty. It was all, it, it was purple. It was beautiful. I'm not going to get into these things too much, but there was a physical gate of the tabernacle, and it was the one and only entrance into God's presence. 
There was only one gate. Interesting, right? There wasn't two. There were no other ways to get into the structure except through this one gate. And guess what? Jesus is the only gate into heaven. It's a picture of what's going on here. It, he, he is the only way. And you can look at John 10, 9. I am the gate. This is what Jesus says which reminded the people that he was talking to of the tabernacle. I am the gate. Whoever enters through it will be saved. John 14, 6, Jesus answers that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, the only gate. Acts 4, 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name in, under heaven by which men can be saved. I've heard Christians say that, uh, you know, there's, there's many roads to lead to heaven, but I've chose Jesus. I've actually heard Je people say that, and I'm, gonna, and I'm just going to say this to you. If you say that, you're not a Christian because you're not a follower of Jesus because you're not listening to the words of Jesus. Jesus said he is the only way, and if that makes me a bigot from, for saying it, then I'm a bigot. Because you can't decide what you want to believe out of the Bible and what you don't want to believe. It's either all true or it's all false. Okay? There's one way. His name is Jesus. So now you're, you're in the courtyard. There's a deep respect for the presence of God. There's this holy fear that comes over anyone whose heart is right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And this was the physical and spiritual presence of the Almighty God himself. And as an individual walks through the gate, the first thing that they see, the first thing they see is this uh, brazen altar, this bronze altar of sacrifice. It's the next thing, the, br the brazen altar. And let me give you a little typology here. Walking through the gate is that point of salvation. Jesus becomes your savior as you walk through the gate. But then when you get to the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice, and this, this is where you move beyond Jesus just being your savior and you start to make him Lord. There's a lot of people in church who love Jesus uh, as, as their fire insurance, keep you out of hell. But there's a lot of people who stop right there and they don't allow that next step of sacrifice to come in. It's the first thing that happens when you walk through the gate. It's why I say things like, you, you know, Jesus, the, the gospel is free. You can walk through the gate and become saved. It's free, but then it will cost you everything. It'll cost you. Because then you have to make the sacrifice. You got this brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. And there were five main sacrifices made by the people at this altar. The burnt offering. Get your pens ready because I'm about to fire hose you, okay? Are you ready? The brazen altar. And you can read all about this in Leviticus and mostly in Exodus. Um, but uh, you, you really should get in there and study this in reference to what Hebrews is saying about this. In Hebrews 9, 1 through 12. But the burnt offering, this was a voluntary act of worship. It was an atonement for unintentional sin in general, an expression of devotion, commitment, and complete surrender to God. The burnt offering was always a male animal, a ram, a goat, a bullock. You know what a bullock is? It's a castrated bull. I'm in Iowa, I can say that. I'm a farm kid, I can say that. Or a pigeon, depending on the worshiper's financial situation. A ram, a goat, a bullock, or a pigeon, depending on the worshiper's financial situation. And I love that because God doesn't expect more from you than you can give, but the animal had to be without uh, any spot or wrinkle or any blemish. It had to be a perfect animal. 
As the animal was slaughtered, the priests would gather up the blood. They would catch it in a bowl of silver, which signified royalty. The bowl came to a point on the bottom and could never be set down. You couldn't set that bowl down. This blood was too precious for that. It was the life source of the animal, and it was the substance by which forgiveness was achieved. Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be, be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. sins. That's the first offering that was on the brazen altar. The second one was the grain offering. And this was a voluntary act of worship. It was recognition of God's goodness and, of his, and provisions. It signified devotion to God. And this was an offering of flour, baked cakes, or, or raw grain together with oil and frankincense. It was a goodwill offering to God. It was an offering of dedication to God with the fruits of the worshiper's labor. It signified a thankful acknowledgement of the Lord's provision for daily food. I think it's similar when we, when we ask God to bless our meals, when we bow our heads and we pray for our meals. I mean, we're, we're thanking him. We're thanking him and giving him praise for his provision. How many know he's Jehovah Jireh? That means our provider. He's our provider. Even in times of suffering and pandemic, and he's our provider. Who's your source? The U.S. government. Ain't my source. And we should thank God on a regular basis. That was the grain offering. Then there was the peace offering that was given on the brazen altar. Or it was sometimes called the fellowship offering. This was a voluntary act of worship. It signified thanksgiving and fellowship, and it included a communal meal. And this sacrifice was similar to that uh, for the burnt offering. The worshiper would bring the animal, which had no defects, place his hands on it, and slaughter it. There's a lot of blood in the Old Testament. The blood was gathered by the priests and sprinkled against all sides of the altar. The difference was that instead of the whole animal being cut up and burnt before the Lord, only certain parts of the internal organs were burned. The priest would receive the, the, the breast and the right thigh, but the one who offered the sacrifice was given much of the meat to have a communal meal of celebration. Since God also shared in the sacrifice, it was, it was thought of as a friendship meal with God. Therefore, it was also referred to as the fellowship offering. And this sacrifice expressed the worshiper's desire to give thanks or praise to God. Now, I'm going to bring all this around in the end, but this brazen altar was an important thing because this is where the people actually participated in the sacrifices. They participated. They got to be a part you had the peace offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and you had the sin offering. This was a mandatory atonement for specific unintentional sin. It was a confession of sin. It was the, for the forgiveness of sin and for the cleansing from defilement. Now remember, why is all this going on? Why are all these sacrifices, all these dead animals, all these, all these things that, that, that they had to do, why did it happen? Because Jesus had not yet died on the cross for their sins. This is, was their atonement. This is how they made restitution by God's order himself. It cleansed them from defilement. The sin offering. The highest kind of sin offering was to sacrifice a bullock. When the high priest had sinned or if the whole congregation had sinned unintentionally, the, the next kind would be a male goat for the ruler. The third kind consistent, or consisted of a female goat for the individual. Uh, the lowest grade was turtle doves or young pigeons as a substitute in case of poverty. 
And this offering was designed to purify from sin so that God would continue to dwell with his people. This was the sin offering. The animal was brought by the worshiper. His hand was laid upon it, and, it, and he then slaughtered it. There were different procedures for the sprinkling of blood if the priest of the congregation sinned versus if a single person sinned, but the internal organs and fat portions were burned just like in the fellowship offering. Now, I'm, I'm telling you what, there was a lot of burning going on in this brazen altar, and a lot of times it smelled like fresh steak. It was a good aroma. You could imagine. Then the, the, the rest of the animal in its entirety was taken outside the camp and burned on top of the ashes that had been disposed of from the other sacrifices made on the brazen altar. This removal of the animal and burning it outside the camp signifies sin's complete removal. Even the vessels and utensils used for such sacrifices had to be broken or scoured. And it's amazing how this foreshadows Christ. He became sin for us. He was our spotless, sacrificial lamb. And they took him outside the city gates of Jerusalem and destroyed his body, nailing him to the cross for you and me. All of this that's going on in the tabernacle, and I hope I'm not boring you. Am I boring you this morning? I'm giving you lots of crazy details and lots of information here. But all of it points to Jesus. It points to the person of Jesus who would live centuries later. And he would fulfill all of these things that were done. God gave Moses instructions for the Israelites and how to worship and how to build this tabernacle. And everything about the tabernacle, if you read it slowly and carefully, screams the person of Jesus. And let me tell you something else. As Jesus, you couldn't fulfill all those things like, like if you just tried to do it. You, we have naysayers in the world, you know, who say, well, that just happened by chance. There is no way that Jesus could fulfill all those things in his lifetime perfectly if it wasn't all true. God gave them a tabernacle to give them a picture of what was to come. And some of them missed it. Many of them missed it. There was also a guilt offering or a trespass offering. That was the last one on the brazen altar. This was a mandatory, a mandatory atonement for sin requiring restitution. It was for cleansing from defilement and included a 20% fine above the amount for restitution. And so the guilt offering was to atone for specific or transgressions where restitution was possible. These sins were usually connected with someone talking, uh, or I'm sorry, taking something illegally. For example, if a man cheated another man. A ransom that was equal to the same value or amount taken plus 20% would have to be repaid to the property owner. If the offense is related to holy things such as tithes or first fruits, because that was robbing God within their worship culture, then the worshiper would repay the amount owed plus 20% to the priest. Maybe we should institute that today. You don't pay your tithe, then you owe 20% above and beyond your tithe. Wow. It was serious stuff. When we sin against our fellow man, we must always reach out in a way that will make things right. We shouldn't only go to God and ask for forgiveness. We must also ask for forgiveness for those we've hurt and make restitution in any way that we can. Think about that. If you sinned against somebody, that's your obligation. You need to make restitution. Sometimes that, that, that requires humbling yourself and swallowing your pride. 
and saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. How many have ever been wrong before? Can I, can I ask a big, 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 big favor? When I am wrong, some would say a lot, or some, somebody said something. When I am wrong, which does happen quite a bit probably, please give me the grace to forgive me when I ask for forgiveness. Isn't that what we all should be doing? Because you're all going to make mistakes. So we have all of these offerings, the five offerings, I've kind of gone over them all, for the brazen altar. And how many remember the old song, Take me past the outer courts. Remember that song? And to the holy place, past the brazen altar, Lord, I want to see your face. Pass me by the crowds of people and the priests who sing their praise. I hunger and thirst for your righteousness. You know that song? It's only found one place. Take me into the holy of holies. That's where we're going. We've passed the outer courts. We've passed the brazen altar. And the next thing you would see, the brazen altar where the five different kinds of sacrifices were made, we get the next thing you see is the golden, I'm sorry, the, uh, the bronze levere. The bronze levere. This was a large bronze basin containing water. It was placed in the outer court between the tabernacle and the altar. And the Bible only tells us that it was made of bronze and standing on the pedestal or a foot. It, it doesn't give dimensions to the bronze labor, which is really interesting. Everything else has dimensions, but this doesn't have any dimensions. Laver means basin to wash in. It's just that simple. And this word is directly connected to our word lavatory and literally means wash basin. Before entering the tabernacle or offering sacrifices, the priests were to wash their hands and feet at the laver. And this is extremely important. They had to wash before, between, and after they performed their priestly duties. And this washing is typical of Christ. It's a picture of him. Now, now where Hebrews picks it up, because none of those things prior to that was in Hebrews. It was just talking about the tabernacle, which those things were a part of. But Hebrews picks it up, and he talks about the holy place. This was a tent that was inside the courtyard. And as you walked into the holy place, you would see the golden lampstand and the table of showbread, which contained the bread of his presence, and then you would see a curtain that separated the holy place. It, it like separated the tent in into two rooms. The first place was the holy place, and beyond the, the curtain or the veil was the holy of holies that was in the back of the tent. So let's talk about the golden lampstand that you saw when you came into the holy place. It was hammered into three main parts, the base, the shaft, and the branches. And we picture this lampstand in reference to the menorah that was used in, in, in the permanent temple and is still used by Jews today. But it's important to note that no dimensions were given in the word of God for the size of the golden lampstand as well. This is representative of the fact that no one can measure the light of God. I should mention that the laver had no dimensions either, and that's, be, that's to signify that there are no, there, there's no uh, uh, end to or there's no measuring the, uh, the ability for God to cleanse you of your sins and wash you. It never runs out. His mercy never runs dry. Okay? And here, the golden lampstand is the same way. It, it had no, no uh, uh, 
real uh, size given, no dimensions. No one can measure the light of God. We do know, however, that they used approximately one talent of gold to make it. That's about 75 pounds of solid gold, worth about $2 million today. The branches, one in the middle and three on each side, contained cups, which were like small bowls. And these cups or bowls were shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. And this was significant to the ancient Jews. Almond in Hebrew means the awakening one, or the awakening one, yeah, the awakening one. Because the almond tree was the first tree to awake from sleep of winter, and it would always blossom first. It spoke of the speedy and powerful result of light. In fact, it is said that the lampstand was referred to as the light of the world. It wasn't somebody else called the light of the world? Hmm. Like centuries later? Yeah, it was Jesus. The next thing you would see is the table of showbread or the bread of his presence. This is in that tent, that holy, uh, that holy place. This table signified the fellowship, the relationship that God wants to offer and, and offers to continually have with you. And the table of showbread was a small table made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid with pure gold. It measured three feet by one and a half feet, and was about two feet, three inches high. It stood on the right side of the holy place across from the lampstand, and it held 12 loaves of bread representing what? The 12 tribes of Israel. Well, you guys are good. The priest baked the bread with fine flour, and it remained on the table before the Lord for a week. Every Sabbath day, the priest would remove it and eat it in the holy place, then put fresh bread on the table. Only priests could eat the bread, and it could only be eaten in the holy place because it was holy. Showbread also was called the bread of his presence because it was always to be in the Lord's presence. In John 6, 35, we read, this is New Testament now. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And going further into this tent, you came to the, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies, right? In this second room, you would have seen the golden altar of incense as well as the Ark of the Covenant, so the golden altar of incense, let's talk about that for a second, is a picture of prayer. Hear me, church. Think about what we've just gone through. We've gone through the gate, which is salvation. We've seen the brazen altar, which is five different kinds of sacrifices, talking about a sacrificial life that we have to make Jesus your Lord and not just your Savior. We've seen the labor, which is the, the, the washing, the, the mercy that never runs dry. Then you get into the tent, which is the holy place, and you see the, uh, the, the uh, golden lampstand, and you see the table of showbread. Now we're into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain and you see the golden altar of incense. It's a picture of prayer, like a fragrant smoke of incense going up into the air. So are our prayers a fragrant, fragrant blessing to the Lord of hosts. Our prayers are like wonderful smelling incense to God. And Aaron was commanded as high priest to burn fragrant incense. It was to be a continual, perpetual burning of this incense. It was also specifically commanded that there were not to be burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, or other kinds of incense offerings. Also, once a year on the Day of Atonement, Aaron was to make atonement on this altar's horn with the blood of atoning sin, of the atoning sin offering. 
Just as this altar could be defiled by improper sacrifices, so, church, our prayers can be defiled when offered with wrong motives. There's been a lot of prayers going up lately for this country, for this nation. Are our motives right? What are our motives in praying for this nation? We should be praying for revival. Not for the right political party to take office so that we can financially stay together. I want to stay financially together, don't get me wrong. But what if freedom was gone? What if something horrible happened in this nation? And it doesn't matter who's in office. What if? And we lost our homes, or you lost your jobs, or the, or the, or the finances just fell out and, and the dollar was worth nothing. What if? If God is your God, and he is your provider, we're going to be okay. <laughs> we're going to be okay. I think as you mature in Christ, and as you draw close to him, in a relational way. And we're talking about all this because no longer is, is access to God dependent on religion. It's dependent on our relationship with him, which we have total control of. I mean, we, we, can, we can be in right relationship with God anytime we want. I love that. It's about relationship. And just as this altar's incense should continually burn, so should our prayers be without ceasing. Just as this altar's physical placement was between the holy place and the holy of holies, our prayer life declares our heart's desire in whether or not we will remain in the holy place or if we're going to go beyond. See, there's a price to pay. In the tabernacle, the only person who could go in the holy of holies was the high priest once a year. We have access to the Holy of Holies, to God's presence, his physical, and I'll even say his manifest presence anytime we want. But a prayerless people is also a people who will never experience his presence. You want God to move on your behalf? You want to fight right now? Oh, I poured concrete yesterday, I'm sore. Get on your knees and pray. That's how we fight. This is how we fight our battles, right? We worship and we pray. We worship and we pray. This golden altar of incense, it's, it's very interesting where it's put in this whole tabernacle because it screams that if we want the presence of God, if we want his manifest presence to change things, we've got to pray. You gotta go to that ultimate place of intimacy with Christ. Go to that Holy of Holies. Let me say it this way. You can't get to the Holy of Holies without the sacrifice of prayer. You'll just kind of hang out in the holy place and you'll never know the fullness of God. Some people don't even get into the holy place. They just hang out. They just walk through the gate and they stand there. 
I mean, think about, think about the tabernacle in reference to your level of maturity in the Lord. You walk through the gate, you're saved. Woo, great, awesome. Name's written in heaven. That's, and that's true, it's wonderful. But then you take another step and a few more steps and you're to the brazen altar and that requires sacrifice. And you gotta get through the brazen altar before you go into the holy place. You gotta get past the levir where you're the washing and the, to where when you sin, you actually realize it and you repent. And like I said, there's no end to his forgiveness. And so you, you're, you're washed, you're clean, you're, you're, you're sacrificing. And, and our, we don't sacrifice animals today. What, what's our sacrifice? We are living sacrifices, right? Right? We live for God. We live out loud. And then we move past that, that place of washing that, that will always happen. And we get into that holy place and we hang out there and we, we have the table of showbread and we have the, the, the golden lampstand. And then to get around that curtain into the holy of holies, there's gotta be the sacrifice of prayer. And then we get to the Ark of the Covenant, which is also back there behind the curtain. And yes, this is the same Ark that Indiana Jones and the Nazis were fighting to get in this <laughs> fictitious movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. The movie was fake, but the ark's very real. And this was a wooden container overlaid with pure gold, inside and out. It was so holy that it was not to be touched. So it had pole rings and poles that were designed to go through the rings so that it never had to be touched by human hands. It was too holy. It's interesting that even with all the animal sacrifice, no one could ever be holy enough to touch it. But one drop of Jesus' blood allows you to go into the holy of holies and see him and experience him and let him live on the inside of you. I mean, that would have been totally foreign to them. God was so holy, they walked in fear because he was so holy. And, and you know what? If, if, if Jesus was right here, if he just came right here today, I mean, some of us would probably have this deep sense of awe and, and respect and be like, whoa, that is God. And we're gonna feel that and sense that. But you know what? One drop of Jesus' blood applied to your life, you can stand before him and not be fearful. Entered the throne room boldly, right? That's what the word of God says. How can we enter his throne room boldly? And literally, this Ark of the Covenant was his throne his earthly, if you will, kind of throne. It's a picture of it. The prayer represented by the altar of incense is more than just spending time with God in fellowship and communication. It's the kind of Holy Spirit-inspired prayer which you make intercession, in which you stand in the gap for the lost and dying world. If there were ever a time that we needed to be engaged in prayer it's now this kind of prayer is the very birthplace of revival that was there that kind of prayer was there for revival and then right next to it you have this ark of the covenant the ark's covering was referred to as the mercy seat this mercy seat was literally the cap the lid on the ark of the covenant it covered the law which was placed all of the law was placed inside this box The mercy seat is Jesus, who is, I mean, he's provided a covering for the law, hasn't he? The law is really the standard of God 
How can finite beings keep the law of an infinite God? They can't. That's why Christ had to step out of heaven and uh, in his mercy and grace die on a cross so that you and I could have forgiveness of sins. You and I could be covered. The word atonement means to cover. All this is connected. And we've, we've talked about the Day of Atonement already, but this, this was one of the most important days in the Jewish calendar. It was the day that the high priest went in behind the veil and he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. It wasn't the blood of Christ. It was the blood of the sacrificial goat which made atonement for the unconfessed sins of the nation of Israel. And as a final, as a final step, the high priest would take another goat and lay his hands upon it and pronounce unconfessed sins over the animal and then send it into the desert, which was symbolic of the sins being carried out of the camp to disappear into the desert. And I, I don't know if you can understand the symbolism. That's where we get the word scapegoat, by the way. How many have ever heard of that? Scapegoat, that's exactly what that is. That's the scapegoat. And the symbolism is phenomenal. The, the blood of Christ has covered our inability to keep God's standard. And he has removed these sins as far as the east is from the west. They are gone. God has chosen to remember them no more. So as that scapegoat went out into the desert and was lost forever, that's what happens to your sins when you ask Jesus to forgive you. Gone forever. Cast into the sea of forgetfulness. Gone. Forever. You know how many people walk around with guilt and shame? Quit it! You don't have to. You don't have to walk in guilt and shame anymore. The blood of Jesus covers it and he erases it. He chooses not to remember them anymore. And remember that veil in the tabernacle that was there to separate the holy place from the holy of holies? You could say that it, it separated the presence of God from his dwelling presence, the, the, from the Shekinah presence of God. But when Christ died on the cross, that veil was torn from top to bottom in the temple. The tabernacle eventually became the temple, which Solomon built, right? And if you want to know why they fight over Jerusalem all the time between Muslims and, and, and Jews, it's because they want that, that temple mount where that actual temple was built by Solomon. The, 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 uh, the, the Muslims would have their place. They want that place too, and so do the Jews. That's what the war is all about over there. So they had this temple in the time of Jesus, this Jewish temple, and there was a veil because they still worshiped the same way. It was just more of a permanent place and not the tabernacle any longer and that veil was torn from top to bottom it said that it was almost 62 feet high and it was about six inches thick and the moment jesus died on the cross the veil went right down the center gone ripped in half and what did it do it exposed the holy of holies which was behind that veil a place where nobody could go except the high priest once a year and now, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, our perfect sacrifice, our once and for all sacrifice, the presence of God, the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God was right there and is exposed to all the people. I mean, can you imagine if there was anybody in the temple and that thing tore down? They would have been freaking out. Like they were gonna die. But the sacrifice of Jesus allows all of us that accept him to have that very presence in our lives. And he lives in us. It's not just that we have to go to it. He's inside of us. Talk about greater than. 
The tabernacle that Hebrews is talking about, which he actually even says, and we read this, uh, I don't have time to go into detail, that's what it says. We just did go into a little bit of detail. You can go much deeper. But that tabernacle, as awesome as it was, and remember there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Can you imagine walking around the desert with this pillar of fire? Like that went into the sky or a pillar of cloud and it was the presence of God. It was the physical presence. It's like, oh, there's God. He's right there. I can see him. That had to be just a fantastic thing to behold. But Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying, all that is powerful and as awesome as it was, first of all, all pointed to Jesus to begin with, and Jesus is greater than all of it. He's a better tabernacle. Jesus is greater than any earthly place of worship. He's greater than anything or any institution or any government or any nation that is established or created by human hands. And I think this maybe carries with it more of a point maybe today than, than in years past, but when something is created by human hands, it's easy for us to worship it. Let me get, let me, let me just, just, let me tell you this. Are you getting tired yet? I've preached a long time, haven't I? I got lots of energy today. I'm almost done. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai, the people crafted a golden image with their hands and then they worshiped it. What do we do? We build things, we create things with our hands. Not as little gold statues that we're going to bow down and worship like that, but we commit idolatry just the same because we put all of our efforts into the almighty buck. We put all of our efforts into our careers. We put all of our efforts into our businesses. We put all of our time and energy, and we neglect things like family and worship and time alone with God. And those things become our idols, I'm not saying having stuff is bad. I'm not saying having a, a great business is bad. I think that's wonderful. I think we should be productive people. Don't get me wrong. But when that crosses over to consuming us, it's become an object of worship. Even our nation can become an object of worship. This tabernacle was just a picture of something better to come, and his name is Jesus. And he came. I love what Hebrews 9.13 says, and I'll, I'll end with this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. It's talking about everything that went on in the tabernacle, all these different things. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I mean, hallelujah. Jesus 
is greater than anything made by human hands, anything created, anything thought up. We serve an eternal God. You can't wrap your mind around him. He's too big. All you can do is realize how small you are and submit to him. For the readers of Hebrews, this was a great reminder. For us today, it's a great reminder. We serve a God that's greater than anything. <laughs> and I'm not afraid. I'm not fearful. I hope you're not either. Do we do what's right and continue to do what's right? Absolutely. But I'm not fearful. Come what may, Jesus sits on the throne of my life. He's my king. He's my president and always has been. Let's pray. Father God, today we love you and I thank you for the patience of this congregation, the attentiveness of this congregation, God, to get through all this stuff. We could do a 10-week series just on, the, just on the tabernacle and all the significant typology that's within it. But Lord, I pray that just a taste of that as the writer of Hebrews brought it up, would cause us to plunge deeper into the things of you and deeper into your word. God, it's so exciting when you see the parallels and the typology and what that means for us today. And God, we, we give you our hearts again today. We give you our lives. We submit to you, God. If it's in your word, we believe it. If you say it, we'll do it. If it's your truth, we will come underneath of it. Because you are in control, God, not us. We love you, and we thank you for all that you are doing in our lives and continuing to bless us with. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.